Let's turn to God's Word, to Matthew chapter 18, and reading from verse 21 through to verse 35. Then Peter came up and said to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have mercy with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that, servant, when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So the fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went out and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brothers from your heart. Matthew 18. And um, last time we had a, a week out like this, we thought about the idea of love from 1 Corinthians 13. We saw that love is the true mark of Christian maturity. It's the stamp of God's own character that he puts upon his people more and more. And we saw from Paul how when God's kingdom comes in all its fullness, when Jesus returns, that will be a world marked entirely by love. Well, this week, in the parable that we're looking at, we see Jesus speaking about forgiveness. And forgiveness, alongside love, is really at the heart of Christianity. If Christianity was a building, um, these ideas, one or two others, but only one or two, these ideas of love and forgiveness would be right down among the foundations. And specifically, as we think about forgiveness we're going to see how this idea is, is really what makes Christianity, real Christianity, stand out from every other human religion and from our, our natural ways of thinking about God. Maybe you're here and you're somebody who hasn't yet made their mind up about life, the universe, and everything. Well, I, I hope from this parable you will see really clearly that the message of Jesus simply presented. 
I suppose more of us here, though, would already see ourselves as convinced Christians. And so what I hope we'll see is that this idea of forgiveness is right at the heart of how we make progress as Christians. Over time, Jesus is changing us, and a big part of how he is doing that is through this idea of forgiveness. If I could put it like that, that in the toolbox of God, forgiveness is the thing that he uses to fix churches and friendships and marriages and families. And one day, it's what he will use to fix the whole world. Now, that sounds like a lot, perhaps, for us to get our heads around on a Sunday morning. But the way that Jesus teaches us is really simple. It's really elegant. He doesn't give us a 50,000-word treatise on the nature of forgiveness. He gives us a story. And what we're going to do this morning is look at the story Jesus tells under four headings, the four headings that are on the service sheets. So first of all, as we look at this story that Jesus tells about forgiveness, what we see is that God's forgiveness is necessary, vast, and free. God's forgiveness is necessary, vast, and free. In a minute, we'll think about the setting of the story in the context of Matthew and why Jesus is telling the story at this point in time. But just first, it's helpful to pull out these basic points and to put them on the table. Three basic facts. First, Jesus is saying that God's forgiveness is vast. The story is about a ruler who we find out at the end is meant to represent God. And it's time for this guy to settle up accounts with his servants. And so he calls in one of his servants and it's not going to be a good meeting This guy was obviously a a manager, a steward of some kind. He had the authority to spend money on his master's behalf, and he has managed to rack up an enormous debt. I don't know whether it was risky investments or extravagant expenses, but it turns out, when when the books are opened, that he owes his master 10,000 talents. Now, You can see from the footnote, if you look at it, that one talent was about 20 years' wages for the average worker in that culture. So it's a huge sum of money, a huge sum of money. And so to owe a 1,000 talents, I tried to work it out. And I reckon in modern terms, this is roughly 400 to 500 million quid. Okay, so this is, some of you have student debts. This This is 400 million pounds. Um, some of us will remember the name of Nick Leeson, who, who ruined Bearings Bank in the 1990s. He, I think he was in Singapore. He was trading on um, the foreign exchange markets, and, and he lost hundreds of millions and brought down this bank. It was global news. Well, well that is the scale of loss that Jesus is talking about in, in the story. And, of course, with a sum like that, there's no chance that this guy can ever repay it. He can't repay it. And so the master orders that his possessions be seized and sold, and that even he and his family be, be sold off into slavery. And so this servant he goes in for this, his, his audit meeting. He's in massive trouble. For him, this is the end of the line. He is ruined. And so there's nothing else he can do apart from fall to his knees. And he begs for mercy. And out of pity, the master forgives him. This huge debt is written off, and he's free to go. Because Jesus is saying that the forgiveness of God is vast. One day God will settle up accounts with each of us. 
not in terms of how much money we have made or lost, but of how we've lived our lives. And the thing we need to get our head around, the thing that Jesus is saying, and it's not easy for us to to take on board, is the scale of our own moral failure, the scale of how much trouble we're in. You and I, according to Jesus, we're the moral equivalents of Nick Leeson. We have spectacularly blown it with God. Now, you might not accept that about yourself. Or maybe intellectually you would accept that, but isn't it? It's hard to feel this in our hearts. It's hard to feel the scale of our own failure. And in my own observation from the way I feel, from talking to others, I think part of the reason this is difficult for us to take on board is that we, we tend to think of sin in a different way from Jesus. So we tend to think of sin in terms of horizontal criminal terms uh, rather than vertical relational terms. Let me explain what I mean. Please could you flick on a couple of pages to Matthew 22. Matthew 22 and verse 37, um, Jesus is answering a question there about what is the greatest commandment, the greatest commandment in all of God's law. And look at what he says. Verse 37, he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God, love him. That's the greatest commandment with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands depend all the law and the prophets. My observation is that we, I, we're prone to thinking in, of sin in terms of the rules that we have or haven't broken and about how much we have or haven't hurt other people in the process. So, I, you know, I've, I've never murdered anyone. I've never assaulted anybody. Um, I try not to, to steal things that are not mine. I try not to break the rule about no lying. I'm not perfect, but I, I do a better job of keeping the rules than many other people in society. And therefore, when it all comes out in the wash, I'll do all right. I'm a, I'm a decent guy. I'm a pretty good person. And many of us, I'm sure, would, would say the same thing. But the problem is, when we start to look at what Jesus says, that's just not the right way of looking at sin. Because it's not about the rules that we break. It's not about how we hurt other people. It's about how we treat God. It's about loving him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the first and greatest commandment. It's about loving God. After all, he's the God who made us, the God who has, has given to us all we have and all we are. And so our first and most natural duty would be to respond to his goodness to us, to his love for us, with love in return and submission and thankfulness. But that's not how we, re- how we respond, is it? Um, some, some people, some of us, will reject him openly. Others of us, it's more quietly. We, we simply ignore him in our lives. We try to get on with it on our own. We set our hearts on other things instead of him. Now, of course, God, it matters to God how we treat other people. But Jesus is saying that this is what matters most. It's how we have treated him. Sin is a matter of vertical relationship. And so the Bible uses powerful pictures when it talks about sin. Uh, pictures like a, a son rejecting the parents who have loved him. Or like a wife cheating on the husband who has loved her. And when we start to see sin that way, we see that we, we haven't loved God. 
We have broken the first and greatest commandment. It's very serious. We're all guilty of it. There is this vast debt that needs to be paid. But he is willing to forgive that debt as vast as it may be. Back in Matthew 18, please look at verse 26. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave the debt. The forgiveness of God is vast. In the story, the king writes, he writes it off. 400 million quid, he writes it off. Forgiven. And what's Jesus really saying? He's saying to us that all, we, all we've done, all we've done wrong, the things we've done wrong and the good things that we haven't done, our failure to love God, our failure to love other people as ourselves, our offensive self-regard and self-direction in the face of God, he's willing to write it off. The vast debt forgiven. And that forgiveness is, is also necessary that's, it follows on from the first thing. That's the second thing we need to see, the second little fact, that God's forgiveness is necessary. The man in the story, the servant, he needs that forgiveness because without it, he is in the worst kind of trouble. It's not just that he'll lose his job. It's not just that he'll lose his savings, his house. I mean, any of that would be dreadful in itself. He's going to lose everything and lose it forever. In the fullest sense of the word, he, he's, he is ruined He is staring the abyss in the face. He needed that forgiveness. And what's Jesus really saying? He's saying that we need it too. Something he was quite honest about throughout his teaching. That God's justice is fair, but very strict. That for rejecting the eternal God, for our failure to love him, there are eternal consequences Jesus was the most loving man who ever lived, and yet he spoke frequently about the reality of of hell. He used metaphors like fire or exclusion or darkness, and he said that it would last forever. And so the the shocking truth of this parable is saying that when, when we face up in front of God for the way that we have treated him, that's what we deserve. We're staring ruin, eternal ruin, in the face. That's a a gloomy thought for a sunny day. And it's not easy for us to to feel the weight of that because our our lives, our modern Western lives, are usually so safe, aren't they? And so comfortable. And yet we do need to try to take on board what Jesus is saying, that we need this forgiveness. We're in great danger without it. That's the second fact just to pull out. And then thirdly, wonderful news that God's forgiveness is free for us. The servant promises to repay the 500 million pounds. Um, But the scale of that debt, I I mean, I I think we're meant to see that that offer to repay is not something that swayed the master's decision. What mattered was simply that the man asked him. He apologizes. He he asks for mercy. Um, Have a look at verse 32, just jumping slightly ahead in the story. And this reveals how the master understood what had happened between them. He says, uh, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. 
That's what the master thought was going on. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. It's important to note that forgiveness is not free, either in the story or in real life. In the story, the, the master, isn't he? he? He's effectively taking the hit himself. In, in writing off the servant's bill, he, he's effectively paying it himself. And that's how it is in real life too. Because in order to forgive us, God had to take upon himself the debt that we should pay, the punishment that we deserved as Jesus came and laid down his life. We rejected God. We haven't loved him like we should. And so we should be rejected by him. And yet on the cross, we hear the words of Jesus, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus faced that for us so that he could also say to us, your sins are forgiven. Forgiveness is not free for God, but it comes free to us when we ask him for it. And that's a big part of what makes Christianity unique. The normal way of doing business with God, the normal way in every other religion, is about earning forgiveness. It's about something we can do to make amends. Whereas Christianity is about what Jesus has done for us and what we simply have to ask for. It comes to us free. And that's why this story it takes us right to the heart of the gospel. Because this is right at the heart of what God is offering to us. A clean slate. A fresh start. A restored relationship. A future with him instead of being sent away. Now many of us know what Jesus is talking about. We, we know the joy of what it means to be forgiven. All of our sins forgiven. We know that, but we do need reminded, don't we, from a story like this. Or like we sometimes sing. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to his cross. And I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. God's forgiveness is vast necessary and free for us. Well, those are the basic ideas. But so far, we've only looked at the first half of the parable, and we haven't looked at all at the setting and why Jesus told this originally. If you look at the first half of Matthew 18, you see the context here. Um, Jesus is teaching his disciples what it means to live as his followers, what it means to live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, that he is bringing in. That's the language Matthew uses. And in particular, Peter, one of the kind of spokesmen for the first disciples, he's been full of misunderstandings and full of questions. And uh, in the previous verses, 15 to 20, Jesus has been explaining how to handle a situation where a Christian does something wrong, um, sins against another Christian, and and won't, won't acknowledge that, won't say sorry for that in a church setting. And and Peter comes up to him after that and says, but hang on, what if they do say sorry? Presumably I need to forgive them, but how many times? Should I forgive them as many as seven times? That's the setting for the parable. And seeing that helps us to, to move on and to see the main point that Jesus is making, which is this. This is the, the main thing. That if God has forgiven you, and you must forgive other people. If God has forgiven you, you must forgive other people. 
Because that's how the story works, isn't it? The, the man, he's been forgiven by his master this enormous debt. He immediately then walks out and, and sees one of his fellow servants who owes him a much smaller amount of money. Notice in verse 28 there, smaller number, smaller unit. It's not a trivial amount of money. It's about a third of a year's wages for an average worker. So I don't know what that is, six, six grand, seven grand, something like that. So it's not, it's not negligible. It's understandable. He wants the money back. But the way that he behaves is dreadful. Let me read verse 28. Seizing him, he began to choke the man, saying, pay what you owe. His fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw that he had, sorry, uh, when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. They went and reported it to their master, all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had had mercy on you? And in anger, his master handed him over to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. If God has forgiven you, then you must forgive other people. That's the main point of this story. When a person, whether it's you, or me, or Peter, when a person experiences the enormous reality of having the debt that we owe to God forgiven, written off, that must completely reshape us, or else we haven't understood it at all. When we experience that reality of being forgiven, that needs to fundamentally change our outlook, the way we view ourselves and life. It must break our pride, humble us, make us patient in our dealings with others. If we truly recognize and if we love the fact, if we love the fact, if we're so grateful for the fact that God has been gentle with us, then that will make us more gentle with other people. Instinctively, this makes sense to us. It's not, it's, in some ways, it's a, it would be a complicated moral argument to try to put in formal terms. But the story, it, it just makes sense. It's intuitive that when the master is outraged, well, of course he is. This wicked servant is wicked. He's been completely unchanged by the extraordinary grace shown to him. He was happy to receive forgiveness, but he refused to pass it on. And the point of the story is that that is no good. That will not wash with Jesus. It's been said that forgiveness is like standing in a river. If it flows to you, it must also flow from you. Or perhaps a better way of thinking about it, it's like an electrical circuit. If, you, if the current won't flow from you, then that's a sign that the circuit is broken and it doesn't therefore flow to you either. It's quite frightening what Jesus is saying that an unforgiving person is an unforgiven person. And to see all the mechanics of, of how, how that is, how that works, I guess the parable doesn't really address that. We'd need to go to Paul's letters and see that, that 
saving faith is always changing faith. That's another sermon. What we need to see here is verse 35, Jesus' conclusion. If you would see yourself as someone who understands the need of forgiveness and is thankful for the cross where Jesus paid the price for you, if you have been forgiven by God, then you must forgive other people. Even when the hurt is very deep. Even when their words were very insensitive. Even though it's not the first time. And you suspect it won't be the last time. If God has forgiven you, then you must forgive other people. Now, it's all very well for me to say that. It's all very well for Jesus to say that. But forgiveness is not so easy, is it? You know, we can't just flick a switch and choose to let go of the things that have really hurt us in our lives. Even if we know we should, it's not that easy. Many of us here will bear hurts that go very deep down. Some of us here, maybe just a few, will have experienced things that have hurt us more than we can say. And it isn't easy to forgive. It isn't. Even when we see it as clearly as Jesus is making it here, it isn't easy. We can't just let go of the hurt that we feel. But the beauty of Jesus' story is that it doesn't just say that we must forgive. It also shows us how we can. It helps us in our hearts to make progress. That's the third thing we need to see. If God has forgiven you, then you can forgive other people. Imagine, just for a minute, imagine that you are another one of the servants in the master's household in the story. Let's try and, let's crash Jesus' story for a minute and pretend that we're in there and this guy comes out of his meeting with his master and he's shaking, you know, he was staring into the abyss, but he's been forgiven and he starts to tell you all about it. He tells you, oh, I can't believe it. I, I'd blown it. I owed him so much. I was ruined, but he's forgiven me and he can't believe it. And he's telling you about this. But as he's telling you, he sees this other fellow who owes him the much, much smaller amount of money. And his face kind of goes a bit, his eyes come down. He goes a bit red. And he, Hold on a sec, he says to you. I need to, I need to get that guy. He owes me money. And you can see he's going off frowning to chase this guy for the money that he's owed. But you manage to catch him by the shoulder. And you say to him, hang on a minute. And then what do you say to him? How would you try to talk some sense into that man? You say, hang on a minute. Think about what you've just been forgiven, the size of it. Think about what would have, been, what would have happened to you that now isn't going to happen to you. This has been a pretty great day for you. So take it easy with that other guy. I mean, he does owe you. But in relative terms, it's not, it's not so much. It's not so much. You see how the story helps us? For us, psychologically, it is as we think about our own forgiveness and what God has written off for us, that it helps us to be more humble, to be more gentle with other people, to become not just a forgiven person, but because of that, a forgiving person. There's an American minister called um, C.J. Mahaney who has written various 
helpful books. And in one of them, he talks about how he trained himself to say, whenever somebody asked him, how's it going, how's life? His answer would be, better than I deserve. So someone bumps into him in the street, hey, CJ, how are you doing? Better than I deserve. And it's a bit of an odd thing to say, but it's a really helpful perspective for the Christian that life is better than I deserve. If I'm a person who has been forgiven by God, I'll be conscious of that, that life is better than I deserve. Even when life is really grotty, or even when life is frankly tragic, it is still better than I deserve. And I know that God has been kind to me and forgiven me. When we learn to see life that way, to view ourselves fundamentally as forgiven people, it starts to change us. It makes us steady, grateful, gentle with other people. The key to forgiving others is to see how much we have been forgiven. And again, this way of working, it takes us to the heart of why Christianity is unique. In other religions, the change comes first. We change, and in turn, that attracts, that we are rewarded with the forgiveness of God. But Jesus is saying it's the other way around. God forgives us, and the the sheer grace of that begins to transform us from the inside out. Therefore, practically, if you're here this morning and you feel like you have much to forgive maybe at work, or in your family, or your marriage, or even in church, you feel that you have much to forgive, that you are much more sinned against than sinning. How do you tackle that? You try to think about what God has forgiven you. Try to dwell on the scale of the debt that God has written off for you. Try to dwell on the future that has been averted for you by the grace of God. How do we do that practically? We need to learn to think of sin in relational terms. Instead of being awfully pleased that I'm a respectable person that generally doesn't break the rules or hurt other people, I need to learn to ask, how have I treated God in the past day, the past week, the past year? How have I treated him? Have I loved him with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength? Often in the services here, we, we have, as part of the prayers, we have a confession. It's very healthy to have that element of confession. And that is healthy too in our own prayers as we pray day by day, confessing to God that there is much that we need forgiveness for. And as we pray like that and think like that and learn to view ourselves like that, it does become harder to hold on to the grudges becomes easier to let go of the hurts, to make the first move towards reconciliation with friendships, to, to close down the distance that can creep in when we feel that somebody has wronged us. And what we'll find is that forgiveness is not a duty. You know, thou shalt forgive, and God lays it on us, and it's hard, but we've got to do it because God says so. No, not at all. Rather, forgiveness is a freedom a wonderful freedom that God's kindness enables us to enjoy as he shows us the way back into a life of restored relationships.
Think about the power of that to fix a marriage or a workplace relationships or things in a church. It's very powerful as forgiveness begets forgiveness. And in fact, we see in the parable that it is so powerful that this is something that will restore the world. That's the final thing we need to see this morning, that God's forgiveness will restore the world. Vengeance. It's such a basic human instinct, isn't it? But it spoils the world. It means that cycles of hurt and violence self-perpetuate. And that's true from the small scale, you know, my life, your life, up to the world stage. But as Jesus talks in this chapter about the kingdom of heaven, he's making it clear that this forgiveness can reverse the way this world has been spoiled. There's something odd right at the start of the passage. Please could you have a look. Verse 21. As Peter comes to Jesus, he says, How many times should I forgive? Up to seven times? And Jesus says to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. It's easy to gloss over a detail like that. 77. What does Jesus mean? Is he just saying a lot of times, more than seven times? He's not really saying that, is he, in the story, saying that we should keep score, but just a big score. Please could you turn back in your Bibles to Genesis 4. It's on page 4, which is quite pleasing. The end of Genesis 4. This is the chapter with... Um, this is the chapter where um, poor old Abel gets murdered by his brother, um, Cain and Abel, it's the, the first picture that God gives us of life spoiled after Eden, after, after the fall. And we see that a big part of that spoiled world, this spoiled world, the world that we know, is vengeance, the principle of vengeance. And um, Lamech is one of the early, early offspring of Adam, um, and he, he was a bigamist, the first bigamist. He had two wives, and see what he sings. He sings a horrible song. And in verses 23 and 24, see how he boasts. He says, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have um, murdered a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If, if um, Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. That's the principle of this world, this fallen world, from the very beginning. That hurt begets hurt. Vengeance leads to vengeance. But Jesus is saying, as he he kind of nods back at that in his answer to Peter, that the kingdom that he is establishing is a place where the whole fall of humanity is being reversed. It's very profound that God's forgiveness is powerful enough to undo the ruin of humanity that we have seen and to bring us back towards a better world. He's saying that even the most basic instincts of vengeful humanity can be softened and undone by the kindness and mercy of God. So Jesus' little story 
is actually making a great big point. That his heavenly kingdom that he is bringing in will be a world reperfected. That's what we're looking forward to. A world where there is only forgiveness. Where that world starts now. It starts with you and me as we begin to grasp more and more that we are forgiven people. And so it becomes more and more true of us that we are also forgiving. Let's pray. Lord, please help us to have more of a sense of what we have been forgiven by you. Pray that you would help us more and more to see that life is better than we deserve. And Lord, please would that have its effect upon us to make us humble and gentle and kind. Please mark us with these marks of your kingdom, marks of the world to come. We long for the day when your kingdom will come fully, finally. But in the meantime, we ask that you would grow these in us. For your name's sake. Amen.